Worship Jesus. Can somebody say amen? Did a marvelous job. Now preach with me, please. Would you do that? Would you all, players? Thank you so much. I want to uh, ask you very quickly before I begin, if you're a first-time visitor, raise your hand and let me see it. We've got a little packet we want you to have right down here is first-time visitor anymore. <laughs> Praise God. We've got a packet we're going to give you. Fill that out. If you're watching for the first time online, let me thank you for being with us. Now, we'll be back here tonight at 6, and we want you with us. This evening, I have a two-part message I'm preaching to you at this time of the year and what God is leading us into. Um, I'm so glad. I'm telling you, that beautiful child right down there, I've got, grand, I've got children and grandbabies. Somebody says, why do they call you? Do they call you Dr. Conway? I went, no, no, no. They could. I've got it. Do they call you pastors? Yeah, but there's a little more to it. Because the kids here call me Pastor Papa. And I got one of my babies over here. I remember the day she was adopted. Stand up and show that beautiful little thing. Over, over. I got a kiss from her early. Isn't she pretty? Oh, my God. Yes, you are. She knows it. I tell you, our family just gets gooder and gooder, doesn't it? Amen. Amen. For the last few weeks, we have been in a fast in this church. Now, I'm going to tell you something I'm doing. You say is unprecedented, but I feel very strongly by the Holy Spirit to say this as we lead this. I'm ending the fast today as the last day of the fast. It's supposed to go on two more days. That doesn't mean you can't go on. And many times I will. I'll continue a fast. Uh, when the church has stopped the fast, I remember one time I've told you that uh, I was fasting and we started in January, about 1st of April, the first middle of April or so, um, I was still fasting, and the Lord said, okay, the fast is over. And I went, what? He said, yeah, now it's about you, not me. <laughs> so I, if you're fasting about you, you know, uh, look what I'm doing. God will correct you there. And I guess I got a little bit of that in my mind. But the fast is the foundation and the base camp for all we have in this church for the beginning of the year. Now, I want to tell you that the turnout in this fast has been fabulous, and the turnout of people that have signed a card saying, put me down for a week, is fabulous. We have enough people to more than have two people a week, well more than that for the next year. And every week, a week will be assigned to you as you're contacted. Uh, Pastor Amber will take care of that, and you'll get... That information from you, you put your name, rank, and serial number down there, and they'll say, it's your week to fast. We'll give you plenty of notice. And our, 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 I put such an emphasis on fasting that our church is covered 52 weeks a year with a fast. First one month in the beginning with us all, and then individual fast for the church during the rest of the year. But I know the power of fasting. If you understand that, say amen. And if you've never done that before, you'll find a spiritual strength, a cleansing. And there's such a, a sensitivity of the Holy Spirit that you gain through fasting that you'll get no other place and no other way. Jesus regularly fasted. In these messages, 
for this coming year. The Lord has given me a theme, and he does every year. And for 2024 at the Sanctuary of Hope, you'll see that the Lord gave me this. This is the year of battle. Also with the year of battle, it's the year of victory. And underneath that in smaller print, that the battle is the Lord's. How many believe that? Amen. The battle is the Lord. We talked about different battles and how we uh, work in and in and with battles. In fact, the first message that I preached to you during our time of fasting was how we approach the battle. Our approach to the battle is very important as a child of God because the battle's the Lord's. The second one is how we perceive the battle, how we see a battle. Do we see it with fear and trepidation or that we're a dread or something? Or do we see it as a victory that God has for each one of us? I told you this the other day that the Holy Spirit showed me that enlightened me. That battles don't, the world isn't privileged to have battles. They have trials and tribulations, and we all do. I said it rains on the just and the unjust. We go through trials and tribulations. But battles, specific battles, are God's battles that he has given us with victory in them. So a child of God is blessed in order for God to give us a battle because he wants us to grow closer to him in the battle. He wants us to see him. And understand who he is in a greater way. And battles cause us to grow in dependency and love and intimacy with God. If you've ever been there, say amen. Amen. Today, I've got two-part message as we come to the end of this fast. And the first one this morning is how to prepare for the battle. And this evening, it's how to participate in the battle. So there are four advantage points that the Lord has given us. How we approach one, how we perceive the battle, how we prepare for the battle, and how we participate with God in the battle. Now this message tonight is very important. And if you're falling into the trends that we don't go to church on Sunday night because they don't, I want you to shake that. Because the day is coming, and I'm telling you, it's coming quicker than you think that you'll be in church on Sunday night or Monday or any night we open the door because there's more tragedy coming into the world. Oh, what a morbid thought. There's more um, uh, cataclysmic things that are coming for this world. Now, how does that affect a child of God? I want to tell you this, and you'll see when the time comes. When, (coughs) When you wake up in the morning and you hear of these things happening, this strange thing's going to happen. If you're truly committed to Jesus Christ, and he knows your heart, and you know his heart, if you're truly committed to Jesus Christ, when you hear it, instead of having panic, oh, it'll be a shock at first, but instead of living in panic, you're going to have a peace that comes over you that's undescribable. It's indescribable. There'll be a peace, the Bible says, that passes understanding. That's a piece that transcends our thought. And when we see the stuff on television and it unfolds and the news media is running here and throwing through, I lost my speech therapy this week. I'll get it back in a minute. When news media is going nuts and we see it, there's going to be a piece that we have knowing that we put our trust in Jesus. And this is part of the end time. If you believe we're living close to the coming of Jesus, say amen. 
So these things are going to happen. But God prepares us with how we approach the battle, how we perceive it, and this morning how we prepare for the battle. I've been listening to some reports of things that are coming that people know that are coming. There are even plans, some of them, that are coming upon America today. And it's going to put us back into a tailspin. And I'm just saying this, and, and really, honestly, I, I hope you know me. If you don't, you've never seen me before online or here. But if you know me as a pastor, I haven't got an angle. <clears throat> I don't believe in angles. I haven't got a string. I'm not trying to pull you or or control you, I'm trying to give you an opportunity to tell you that being in church is absolutely essential and needed. Can you say amen? amen? It grows you. And I don't care who is doing what and who's not doing what. If the doors of the church are open, I'm asking you to come into the house and be here. Because your strength is going to come here. Jesus said this, and he was talking to us. He said, in the last days, and these last days are coming. He said, as the time is drawing closer, don't neglect the assembling of yourself together. And even more so as we come closer to the coming of Jesus. So is this a commercial to be in church? No. Is this an, a guilt trip to be in church? No. What it is is an opportunity to grow in God and have that that closeness with him, instead of trying to run and jump on the wagon when everything is going nuts and get close to God, be close to God, okay? Three of you said okay. Okay? Amen, amen. My text this morning is in Joshua chapter 10. And let me explain to you what's going on in the 10th chapter of the book of Joshua Joshua is leading the people of Israel now. He's taking command. And Moses has, has relinquished his time and his work with God. And Joshua has led the children of Israel across Jordan. This is the first steps they've taken into the promise. This is Canaan. They're in the land of Canaan. Now, all the Canaanites, Hivites, Hittites, Jebusites, all the different Canaanites, all these different names had a common name of Canaanites, all these different nations, and they were city nations is what they were. They were not united, but they were united in the fact that they were all Canaanites. They fought with each other and everybody else. But that land is a land now we know as the land of Israel and a land of promise that was given to Abraham. Now Moses is leading them through, and they've come across Jordan, and they're on the, on, the, on the first stop. They've come across, and they've got a base camp. And this base camp is called Gilgal. And it has a name, and I'm giving you this history so you all understand the text better. This Gilgal actually means 12 stones. And how it occurred was when they crossed Jordan, which was an impossible situation, because Jordan was at its flood peak. Now, I've been in the Jordan. I've been baptized in the Jordan. I've baptized people in the Jordan. Ruth drank half of the Jordan. 
And that's another story. I've told you about that. We were on the bus coming back after a great baptismal service, and she had two deals of water, and she was going to take a, a, one of her bottles and fill it up with the Jordan River and bring it home, and she was going to take another one just to drink. And she got back to the motel, and she goes, uh, I think I drank the wrong bottle. <laughs> Ruth actually drank a bottle of the Jordan River, and, and she's been in great shape ever since. <laughs> Emerald green. It's absolutely beautiful. The, the, the temperature is perfect. I, I was in it about here when I was baptizing people. And, and these little fish nibble at your feet. You can feel them. It's first you're going, woo, and then after a while you're going, woo, that's nice. And, and they're just constant, and it's so clean and nice. But at flood state, all of the silt is washed into the Jordan, and the Jordan becomes a muddy. You ever heard of muddy Jordan? Naaman complained to Elisha. He goes, why are you having me baptized in that muddy Jordan when I can go to two rivers in, in my country and they're clean? And, but it was, it was the time of the year. It was the fall time of year. So Jordan was at its flood state. And so Jordan, where I was at, typically is about maybe a little wider than this church is at, at normal peaks. And then it gets a little wider and more narrow. But this time it could be as, as wide as a quarter of a mile of raging water, rapids running with mud. And that's where it was when Israel got ready to cross. But God said, cross. Now, when God tells you to do something, you don't have to go back and say, hey, do you know what's going on? He knows what's going on. He knew that the Jordan was that. that well, he told the priest, he says, take the Ark of the Covenant and walk toward the Jordan. Now, it wasn't hard to, because like I said, it was probably a quarter of a mile of raging water. And when their toes touched the Jordan, this incredible, unbelievable, but true event happened. Jordan parted, and it stopped just like the Red Sea. Not only did it stop, it stopped all the way back to a city called the city of Adam. That was the name of the city, all the way down to where they were crossing. There was a wide enough path for Israel to cross, and the land was dry. Unbelievable. Miraculous. It was the second time that God parted something with his miraculous touch to say, this is my will. So they walked across. And when they got across, Joshua, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told the priest, go back each one of you, and get a stone. Get 12 stones that represent one for each of the nations of the sons of Jacob, the nation of Israel. So the priest was there, and God had the stones prepared. They picked these large stones up, and they brought them over, and they laid them in a circle. And the 12 stones in Hebrew is Gilgal. So they established a base camp, and they... They made it a memorial to God for what he had done. It was miraculous what was going on. And at that base camp, they were going to go from that point forward. The first thing they were going to come across was Jericho. And we know the walls of Jericho fell. Then the sin of, uh, in Ai, when uh, Achan took some of the 
golden garments and, and he was stoned for that, repented but was stoned. And then that brief loss of a battle, then they, they conquered Ai and they were moving into Canaan. Well, the word got out. And here's what the word got out. Something's different about these people. How many know something's different about you? Let me ask you, how many know there's something different about you yourself than what it used to be? You see, God changes us. And we aren't who we were. And he doesn't remember who we are. The devil does, but I don't listen to the devil. I don't listen to the voice of the enemy. I know that I'm new in Christ. I'm a new creation in Christ. And here they are. They're on the other side of Jordan. They're at this now encampment called Gilgal. They have the memorial of the 12 stones. And they're set up and they're ready to go forward. And then God institutes a covenant called the covenant of circumcision. And that was unique to Israel and no other nation. That could tell them apart from any other nation. And they go through this covenant relationship with God. And they're ready to go. They have gone to Jericho, and there was defeat. They defeated Ai, and the word's getting out into Canaan that the Israelites are coming. The strange thing about them is all the other kings of the Canaanite city-states realized that when they conquered Jericho and they conquered Ai, they didn't take anything for themselves. And they thought, this is different. They didn't carry off the gold of Jericho. They didn't carry off the gold of Ai. In fact, uh, God told them, don't touch it. That's why, that's why the sin that taking just a little bit came on that family. And the nations go, what kind of a nation would conquer Jericho, which was impenetrable? What kind of nation would conquer Ai and not take anything, leave it and go on and they begin to fear them because what they did. And listen, I'm going to tell you a concept that's so profound and so true and so real in your life. They battled. Every battle they had wasn't a battle to give them self-worth or look what I've done or look what I have gained. But every battle that Israel was engaged in brought glory to God. If you can learn in the battles that God chooses for you. Now, he doesn't go out and say, hey, here's a good battle. Let's, he allows the enemy to attack you. Then he gives you a battle plan. The enemy's going to attack you. He's constantly. But instead of fear and regret and run and hide and quit as a child of God, God gives you a battle and a battle strategy and the ability to win this battle. But they said, what kind of nation is this? They fought Jericho to conquer the land. They fought Ai to conquer the land and didn't take anything. They did it all to the glory of their God. And people in Canaan began to worry because their value system was different. Your value system is different than the world. It's not about what is in it for me as a child of God. It's how can I bring glory to God. If you want to grow in God, that's the aim that you should have in everything. 
Sadly, that wasn't what Saul had when he became king. It was all, look at me, look what I've done. And the battles became uh, a pedigree of his greatness. In David's case, battles brought glory to God. In our case, battles must bring glory to God. Jericho, Ai, and they're going. Now, if you looked at the map of Canaan, they're going right down through the middle of Canaan, and the north and the south is being divided by the nation of Israel. So they cut off communication between the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms, and they get heard about, and, and concern comes up because the king of the Jebusites and Jerusalem hears about it. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, Adonai, Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard. Now, this is for they were conquered and became the city of David and the city of Zion and the headquarters of Israel. The king of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it. Doing, and doing to Ai as he had done to the king as he had done to Jericho and its king. And the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel who were living near them. Now let me explain something about this. Gibeon were the Gibeonites that were in that land. And they actually found their God, the God of Israel, to be a true God. And they began to worship God. And they came to Israel and they said, let us just work in the temple. Let us be temple workers. We're not wanting your protection because we need it because the Gibeonites were a mighty, mighty force. And their warriors were known to be frightening and very powerful. So it wasn't they weren't coming out of fear. They were actually coming out of reverence. And they come to Joshua and said, adopt us. Bring us in. Put us under a covenant with you because we believe in Jehovah God and we are willing to even be temple workers and work in the church. Give us a job. We'll, be a, we'll, we'll sweep the floor and dust the windows and we'll be a greeter and Sunday school teacher. Just give us a job. So Joshua extends a covenant to them and the Gibeonites are protected and, and this is what the Bible says. So um, he and his people, verse 2, were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and its men were good fighters. Verse 3, so Adonai Zedek, this is the king of Jerusalem, appealed to Joham, the king of Hebron, and Piram, the king of Jarmuth and and you understand there's no J's. I'm pronouncing this all wrong. And Japhia, the son, uh, the king of uh, Lachish, and uh, Debir, the king of Eglon. And he comes to him, and he gets five Canaanite nation cities together. And he said, we cannot have Israel coming down through the middle and destroying Canaan. We can't have them making leagues and the Gibeonites have made a league with them. Let's, tra- let's teach them a lesson. They were afraid of Israel, but they were more engaged in trying to destroy Israel, and they were going to destroy Gibeon for what they had done to make a league with them. So he said in verse 4, Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. 
Then these five kings of the Amorites, the king and we nationed, uh, named them all again, comes together in a league, a confederacy. This is the first time they'd ever worked to, in a confederacy. They were independent nation states, and now here they are coming together for one reason. They're going to destroy Israel. So they make this league, and it's a large number, and it's big enough to get the job done. And so they said, the first thing we're going to go is to the Gibeonites. And when the Gibeonites heard about this, and they moved their troops and took up a position against the Gibeon and attacked it, in verse 6, the Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal. Look at this now. In the camp, in the base camp, where they had dedicated the 12 stones, Gilgal, to God, they had involved in the first covenant with God of circumcision. They were putting together, this is the first time from the time they had transferred over from the, from the uh, wandering in the desert, the first Passover. And, and this Passover instituted something new that was going to happen. I have all kinds of pastors that do a marvelous job at this Passover we have called Communion. But this morning, the Lord told me, you lead in this Passover because I'm getting ready to do a new thing in the sanctuary of hope. Are you listening to me? We're getting ready to cross into some new areas. We're getting ready to see some battles with victories of these enemies of the church that have come against us. And we're not going to sit back and wait for the world and all of its threats to say and do what they say. We're going to move forward in the power and the anointing and the established power of the Holy Spirit to see this year some new things in this house, in this church, and in this community. <clears throat> we're going to get them. So Joshua and the Gibeonites, when they heard us in verse 6, they said, Joshua, we have a covenant. And we have this covenant, and you've got to come to our aid. We love the God you love. We're serving the God. We want to be part of it. So Joshua marched from Gilgal with his entire army and his best fighting men. And, the, and listen to this. He, when he uh, marches with them, uh, the Lord said uh, to Joshua, Don't be afraid of them. I have given them into your hands. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Now, this is one of the five nations. Here's what Joshua did the second he hears about Gibeon being attacked. He starts from his base camp, a base camp that has a memorial to God, one that has trusted God, believes in God, has put their commitment to God. He takes his army, and he starts walking and listen to this, this entire nation army of Israel is going to march 20 miles at a slight grade uphill. They're going to go up 3,000 feet in elevation, 20 miles, and they're going to march it in 10 hours and get to Gibeon. You would think that would be enough to make them say, hey, we need a week off, we need comp pay, you know, what's in it for us? These guys were going to battle, but they were going to battle to bring glory to God. Listen to me. When you 
face a battle, if you'll change it from God, get me out of the lion's den or get me out of the fiery furnace or deliver me to say this, God, I want to do something in this battle that brings glory to you. You're going to have a whole new perspective of an almighty God. You're going to have a deeper relationship and you're going to grow like you've never grown before when the battle brings glory to God. God said to him, the Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid of them. I've given them to you. So he's saying this, when we go into battle, we can have an assurance that these battles, that the enemy attacks us. And when he attacks us, God says, okay, I'm with you. This is a battle now. This isn't just trials and tribulation. This is an attack of the enemy. Have you ever had things go wrong in your life and after a while you start smelling a skunk? And saying, hold it, just what is this? There's too many coincidences here. I found many times that I don't realize it at first, but after a while, I start understanding, hold, this is the enemy attacking me. Does anybody understand what I'm saying? I'm telling you, this isn't just me making bad choices or bad luck or happen to be at the wrong, uh-uh, this is nothing about, this is an attack of the enemy that comes against me, and your perception that comes from the Holy Spirit all of a sudden tells you, I'm under attack. And when we're under attack, then we can go to God and say, okay, the enemy started this. I'm going to ask you to finish it. And in every case, if we'll give the glory to God in the battle, he'll finish it. That's when it becomes his battle. (coughs) So the Bible says in verse Nine, after an all-night march to Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. They didn't expect this to happen. God will always surprise the enemy with an attack that he doesn't let them in on. They, the enemy is not omniscient. They don't know any more about the next minute than we do. Satan is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent, and he is not omnipotent. He is at the the very control of an almighty God. Can somebody say good for that? And after they had marched all night long and they had come to this place, the Lord threw them, verse 10, into confusion. This is all of the enemies that had come, this confederacy. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them with such a great victory at at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going to Beth Haran, and cut them down all the way to Azichah and to Machedah. And he says, and listen to this. Here's this path of cities they're running to. As they fled before Israel on the road down to Beth Haran and to uh, Azichah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky and more died from the hailstones that were killed by the sword. God said, not only am I going to give you the power to put the enemy on the run, I'm going to go with you, but I'm going to help you with a little extra armament. I didn't expect that. I didn't expect God. I, I know, you know, this, let me tell you the most foolish statement you've ever heard that someone's tried to say is scripture and it's not scripture. God helps those who helps themselves. I'm going to tell you a Greek word I use quite often, and I want you to say it with me real slow. That's baloney. That's not scripture. 
That's not true. It's not God helps those that helps. Why God wants you involved in the battle <clears throat> is for this very reason. He wants us to have unity with him. And he wants to show us in relationship who he is. And that's it. That's the reason God involves us in battles. He doesn't need us. But he wants us to be involved. And what we're doing and how he uses us does not substantiate the fact that if the more we do, the more God does for us. That's not it at all. He's building a relationship together. And the battle is what enlightens us and gives us that understanding of who God is. And we draw closer to him and closer to his word. And that's how we grow in intimacy and trust with God. That brings glory to God in all that we do. So he kills them. God takes hailstones. They're coming down the size of basketballs. And more are dying from that. <clears throat> oh, I have read, I purposely read some of the philosophers' ideas of what was going on. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. One of them was there was a particular water, uh, weather front that came up through that area. And it happened to collide with another weather front, and they said it wasn't unusual. And the hailstones that came was uh, because of weather. And I said, well, that might be true, too. But it's strange how those hailstones focused on the enemy and not the nation of Israel. I, I love, my most famous one was the guy that says, uh, well, you know, that, that miracle of crossing the Red Sea wasn't, wasn't anything because right there where they crossed the Red Sea, the Red Sea is only two foot deep at that particular point. And that is my favorite one because I said, praise God, that's incredible. God drowned an entire nation of Egypt's army in two foot of water. That's even better. So everything the enemy tries to come and says it's circumstance or happenstance is nothing. It's God's stance. It's God involved. It's God leading. It's him fighting the battle and doing things for you and I we can't do. Leading us in ways we cannot be led and showing us things that we cannot be shown. Now, this is part one of a two-part message. God destroys them. The five kings at this point, run away, and it's where we start tonight. But let me show you what God's doing in preparation because he prepares us for battle. He gives us the approach to the battle. He gives us a perception of how we see the battle, and then he prepares us. And the preparation for battle is this, that you must have a base camp. You've got to have a foundation. You've got to, you've got to have a Gilgal in your life and in your walk with Christ. <clears throat> and I'm going to tell you that this right now today, I know the Holy Spirit spoke to this to me. <clears throat> I know he told me as I was preparing that tomorrow morning when you begin to preach to these people online and in this house right now, understand this, that I am preparing a Gilgal called the Sanctuary of Hope. I'm building a base camp here that's built on a relationship with God. I'm building a base camp that's built on a memorial of who he is to us, one that we go out from, one based on a covenant, not the covenant of circumcision, but the new covenant of the past 
Passover because that's the first Passover that happened when they came into the land of Canaan. And this morning, he said, you lead these people in Passover. This was Passover. This thing we call communion was the new Passover, and it comes with many more benefits than the first one. The first one came with the the covering of the blood of animals. But this morning, my friends, we had a Passover with the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, with an eternal promise and an eternal security and a direction that every child of God can know. And that's why we go to battle to bring God the glory. That's why we go to battle to bring him the praise. And it hasn't got a thing in the world to do with us, but we will see the enemy destroyed when he goes ahead of us and leads us and guides us. But we have to have a foundation and a base camp to start from. And this morning, I pronounce Gilgal on the house of the sanctuary of hope. And we will follow God and bring the glory to him. Today, in my notes, I call this place Gilgal. The name refers to a circle of rocks, a place of covenant. Gilgal for Joshua was an important place. Gilgal was a place of memorial. If you look at Joshua chapter 4, verse 20, it says this in 420. What about these stones? He said, bring these 12 stones and put them up here. Because when you do, and Joshua set up at Gilgal 12 stones that they had taken out of Jordan. 21 goes on to say this, that when they begin to ask you what is the meaning of this, now listen to what he said. Oh, listen to what he said. He said, when your descendants come to you and they say, we see these 12 stones, what do they mean? He said, tell them very simply this. These 12 stones are saying that this is the place where Israel walked across Jordan on dry ground. Did you hear me? This is a place where they crossed Jordan on dry ground. This is a place of power and memorial. This is a memorial to an almighty God that gave us a covenant. And these rocks stand for that place of memorial. He took the 12 stones from the Jordan, each one for the tribe of Israel, and he placed them in the camp and said, when your future descendants ask you, what do these stones mean? I'm going to tell you something in the future. I want our children and their children in this church to look back and say, what did the 12 stones mean? And we'll tell them that, that, is, that this is where we crossed over Jordan. We crossed into a place of newness. We crossed into a place of promise on dry ground. Gilgal was a place of radical obedience. The first thing is a memorial. The second in preparing is a radical obedience. The circumcision was a radical obedience. It It was a separation from all the nations and the world. It was radical in the fact that God asked us. It was radical in the fact that they accepted what God said. And it was radical in the fact of the effect that God had on these nations. It's a separation from the world. Now I want to tell you something. We have far too long thought we could win the world by coming to them and looking and acting so we'd be accepted. You're never going to be accepted by the world. 
But I want to tell you something this. When you separate yourself, there's something so radical about that in your life that the world sees it. And all the answers that the world has had isn't going to cut the mustard. They're still depressed. They're still on meds and they're still having problems and they're looking for ways out. But when they find somebody that's put their trust in Jesus Christ and they look at them, it's not going to be acceptance of you and how they look. It's going to be a longing for the Holy Spirit in their life and a reproach to the sin that's destroyed them. Gilgal's the place where reproach was removed, the third thing. Man, listen to this. Let me explain this. When you look at Joshua, chapter 5, verse 9, in Joshua chapter 5, verse 9, it was the place where reproach was removed. God told Joshua, today I have rolled back the reproach of Egypt. Here's what he's saying. Look at this. I have removed the idea or the mentality of captivity. Listen to this. You ever been in sin before? These words are going to ring with you. I have removed the reproach of captivity. Your past, the slavery is gone. Mm. Everything that Egypt stood for, your freedom restored. The covenant of the Holy Spirit by the precious blood of Jesus. All these things. He said, I have removed your past and put you on a new plane. And I've removed the reproach of Egypt out of your life. That's what Gilgal did in preparing. My goodness. Look at the stages how he did this. Look how these things come about. First, a memorial to God. Then radical obedience comes out of that. And then he says, I've removed the guilt. You haven't got any more guilt. You haven't got any more thoughts of the past. You are free by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is preparing for the battle. I've removed the reproach. <clears throat> I made an everlasting unbreakable, unchallengeable, binding, powerful, saving, keeping covenant with you. And this is the platform for your base. This is a pre preparation for you to go into the promise that I have made for you. And again, he said today, I call this place Gilgal because the reproach has been moved. A place of memorial, a place of radical obedience, a place, a place of the removal of the reproach. The enemy's control is gone. It's a place today where we're free in Jesus. This is Gilgal. Gilgal, nextly, is that a word? Where you at? I look at my English teacher. I just made it a word. Nextly. Write it down. I'm going to quit telling jokes if you don't start laughing. <laughs> Sister Elder just shakes her head. You're supposed to have a colleague. You know. Gilgal was a place 
of obedience. And it was a place that we remember our salvation. My. A place of remembrance. We had memorial. We had radical obedience. He removed our sins. Now it's a place, a beautiful place, the fourth, that we remember our salvation. Joshua led them into a celebration called the Passover. He's saying, we have had the angel of death pass over us. And we have been given freedom by the blood. This new Passover, sealed by the covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ, on this day has caused us again in preparation for those things that are coming, those battles that are God's. He has continued to prepare us today, and we are Gilgal. On that day, the manna stopped. And they begin to live on what the promise provided. Now, I'm going to say that one real slow. In Gilgal, after the Passover that day, the manna stopped falling every day. The manna stopped coming down. And there was no manna. When you read the scripture that explains that, you find out that the manna stopped and they lived on the benefits and the blessing of Egypt for the next year. He said, I'm going to give you a year's provision of the best of the best till you get stable in the nation, till you get stable in the land, till you've conquered enough that you can farm your own land and you can raise your own crops and you can fish your own fish. But I'm going to provide for you. And this was an incredible power that God gave us. This manna stopped because God was ready for these people to live on what the promise provided. The enemy has closed out, stolen from you, withheld from you what is yours, has threatened you, has ganged up on you and said that you can't have it, and it's not yours. They're saying we're in control, you're not. But we've established a camp. We have a base. We have a sure foundation on the truth that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. And he declares that every promise and established in the word of God is ours by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, my goodness. You see, the preparation's important. And we've done that. We've come to that. Individually, I'm telling you today to listen to what I'm saying because it's extremely important for you to understand what God is doing. I've preached to you that this is the year of battle and the year of victory, and the battle is the Lord. It's how we approach the battle. It's how we go into this battle with Jesus, his way and his timing. It's how we perceive. This is how we see the battle. Our battles are de designed to win. And God's response to the enemy's attack to us is to give us a battle and lead us to victory. And today the message is how we participate in this or how we prepare for the battle. And 
Not listen to the foolishness of helping ourselves makes God help us, but look at our dependency on Almighty God that leads us into a promise that he promised every place you put your foot will be yours. The land will be yours. The land will provide for you. And I don't care what the enemy says to you today. God has a victory in every battle you're facing. He just wants the glory. That's all he's after in these battles. God wants our participation to use us in unity with him. You see, everything I'm telling you today is all about relationship. Everything I'm telling you is about relationship with God, relationship with the Holy Spirit. I was talking to a young preacher the other day who's going through a very difficult time, but God has chosen this battle, and he's in the battle. And he's going to come out fine. He doesn't know it yet, but he is. And I was telling him the problem today in America, I see this, is a separation in relationship with the Holy Spirit. My friends, listen, there, are no, there is no other power, no other way, there's no other program or plan that's going to get you where you want to go with God except for the Holy Spirit. If there was ever a time in your life that you need to cleave to the Holy Spirit, draw close to the Holy Spirit, embrace Him, declare Him, and follow Him in the name of Jesus, this is the time now. This is the time that if you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, to get hungry for it and ask God, if this is from you, give it to I People say, are you afraid to tell people? No, are you kidding me? I tell people that have never experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues, go to God and say, Father God, you're a good God and you're not going to give me something bad. The scripture says, if a son asks his father for a piece of bread, will he give him a stone? If he asks him for a fish, will he give him a serpent? And he says, no, if we being earthly are evil compared to God and we do good things for our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father read it in Scripture? Give us the Holy Spirit if we ask Him. And there needs to be a resurgence and a revival of the Holy Ghost in the church today and in the lives of people and a hunger for God to fill and refill and give me something I haven't got. Don't get caught up in apathy or you'll be trampled by the enemy. You won't have a base you won't have a plan. You won't have the ability to get the promises of God. But when you go to battle, go with the Holy Spirit of God in you. Make him your closest friend. Worship him and God will fill you up and overflow. And you won't be the same person you used to be. But it is a time for a revival of the baptism of the Holy Ghost in the church today. And we're going to be the Gilgal that leads you to that place and changes your life. I can look at this congregation and I can go person after person that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a clique or a gang or a group or I believe or I don't. It's a fact. And I pick on Pastor Emily but I remember what Brian brought her, this nice Methodist girl to church. I've been married a couple months. She's been with us 20 years serving. But I remember Dr. Gorman is it still sweet to you, hon? That night, Dr. Gorman's praying, preaching. And, and, and this little Methodist girl comes down here. Now, I was raised by Methodist father, Jewish Methodist. Figure that one out. 
I was raised by a Baptist mother. But they experienced something that was different. Oh, I don't know if it's for me. It ain't if that's how you feel. God's not going to press you or make you, but he's got available to you a power source that's unlimited. The, the ability to real, re, reveal truth. I'm very comfortable where I am. We'll stay there. But there's nothing there. Moving forward is all there is. And I remember she was standing right down here, and I was here with Dr. Gorman, and he saw her and that power of the Holy Spirit he worked in. This man that the world knew standing there. She didn't know him. But he, he says to her, honey. And that he called everybody honey. And boy, when he did, he'd melt you right there. He said, honey, you want more? And that little girl right over there started bawling. She couldn't even talk. Yes. And he got her by the hand. And when she got on the top step, she lifted her hands. And that girl got baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God has led her from position to position to position to where she's your pastor today. And I'm going to tell you, God will lead you and guide you in ways that you've never believed before. I have a friend right across the street. His name is Rabbi Jeremy Stortz. He's a real rabbi. And we're blood as Jews. And we talk. And, and he's asked me if he dies to do his funeral. That's how close we are. But he told me about the day that he came from Bronx, New York, down here. And he was working at the Passion Play. And he was playing the thief on the cross. And he got to thinking, hey, this really happened, you know. This isn't just a story. And it started to touch him that the crucifixion was real. He got home and went into his room, his apartment, right down there where the passion, great passion play is. And when he walked into the room, there was this light that he hadn't seen and didn't recognize. And a voice came to him and said, Jeremy, I am Yeshua Messiah. I am the God that came and died for you. And he fell on his bed and he wept and cried all night long and gave his heart to Jesus Christ. The next morning, some of these people that wanted to lead him out of Judaism into something real came and got him and said, come on, we're going to go to a party. We're going to, and didn't tell him it was a baptism. And they thought they'd take this poor Jew and tell him they didn't know that he was a completed Jew because he had met Jesus last night. And he was a Saul on the road to Damascus that came a Paul. And he said they had their dinner and then they were trying to explain baptism to him. And they walked down through the water. I had him tell Hunter Lundy this story in his office. He said, I, they walked down, they were baptizing people. So I just walked down. I walked down into the water. And they said, hold, hold just a second, Jeremy. You don't understand. You got the cart before the horse. He goes, no, huh? you got the cart before the horse. Baptize me. He said, that preacher said, okay. Baptized him in that creek. And Jeremy said, when I come out of the water, I lifted my hands and I began to speak in a language I'd never heard before. And I was baptized in the Holy Ghost. And I've been walking in that power ever since. Listen to me, my friends. If we've ever lost the focus of the power of the Holy Spirit in this church, we're going to gain it back in order to be a Gilgal this year. Our foundation is going to be Pentecost. It's not a club or a clique or a gang or something I've said I've done. It's been the greatest source of power to me I've ever experienced and I wouldn't dare stand before a living God and tell you something that was just a doctrine or an idea. I know it's real. There's no doubt about it. I know the old me and I know the new me. Ask my wife the night I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and we showed up at Central Assembly of God, the World Headquarter Church on a Wednesday night and was there and she had slacks on. 
you go to hell for that. And, 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 and we were going to sit in the back. And I remember Dr. Fran Harrison, this wonderful lady, saw us and went, come down here. And we didn't say no to Dr. Harrison, one of the great teachers, her and her husband, Dr. Barker Harrison at Evangel, brought us down on the second row. Set us down, and Mom Harrison looked over at me, and she said these words. Honey, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? I went, blah, 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 blah. I was raised in it. I've been around all my life. Have you been? I said, no, ma'am. She said, well, you're going to tonight. And I went, really? How do you know? Man, at the end of that Wednesday night service at Central Assembly, Pastor Philip Wanamaker said, anybody who wants an infilling of the Holy Spirit, wants more power of God, wants something that's real and not phony. This is a world headquartered church. This man pastored and led the leaders of the world, said, come down to the front. And we walked out of the front, and I reluctantly went down. because like, how you do it? How you go? What do you have to do? Does God take control of you? you know, all these questions. Mom Harrison said, just lift your hands and start saying, Jesus, I love you and I need you. Jesus, I want you to baptize me and fill me with the Holy Spirit. I have a friend that started preaching this a few weeks, a few months ago, again in his church. And there was an exodus of many people. His name's John Lindell. He pastors James River. I've known John and Debbie since they graduated. I was on the stage as on the board member of Central Bible College when he graduated. And I've watched his life. But he stood up and he said, we're going back to our roots. We're going back to our Gilgal. We're going back to who we are. And they had over a thousand healings since that point. And every Sunday this morning, there'll be people saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit in James River. Because there's a revival going on in that house. And I'm telling you, there's a revival going on in this house and after I prayed and labored before God and I thought it ain't going to happen I put my best punch in it's about 10.30 at night. Everybody was gone. And Jonna Wheeler, you see Pastor Jonna Wheeler that comes from Dallas. She was there. And Betty Wanamaker was there. And Philip Wanamaker was there. And, and Dr. Fran Harrison was there. And my wife-to-be was there. Ruth was there. And at about 10.30 at night, I'd just given up. And I said, I, I can't. I can't go any further. I can't do anymore. And when you learn to give up, whatever that means for you, something happens. And all of a sudden, just a couple words begin to come out of me. But I knew it wasn't me, and I knew it wasn't phony, because I didn't want anything phony. I didn't want anything stupid, anything superficial, or something man-made. But I knew it was God. And I began to say these words, Abba. I did not know that that meant Father in my own tongue. I didn't understand but I begin to cry, Abba. And as I begin to cry, he began to fill me. And I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I've never been the same since. And I'm going to tell you that if you'll take that renewal and keep it fresh in your life and true in your life and every day in your life, you're going to have a base camp in your life called Gilgal that will go to the enemy. And when the enemy attacks, you're going to give them something more than they want. There's no age limit. There's no qualification. Your IQ or your income or your belief or not belief. It's just a hunger that says, God, give me more. Give me more. <clears throat> I'll end this with this story. 1983, I was assigned to guard Dr. Billy Graham and I traveled with him. We were at a great function with 3,000 people. And he was doing 
a message he had, 30 minutes. Oh, you've heard this story, but listen again. I'm standing over here. Now, when I guarded governor, I, wore, I looked just like I am now. Well, not quite this nice. I couldn't afford this nice. Somebody say, you look nice. Thank you, all three of you. I'm standing over here in my suit. And I've got Dr. Graham's coat over my arm. I look normal, except if you went like this, I look like a hardware store. I'm guarding. Dr. Graham's preaching. He has 30 minutes. He has three points. I experienced this. <clears throat> he preached, and all of a sudden he looked at the clock, and he said a conclusion that only he could do. This is Billy Graham. I was sitting by him in the car one day, and we were driving. And at that time, maybe there's been more since, but at that time the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said these words. You're sitting next to the man that I have chosen to lead more people to Jesus than any man since Adam. I got goosebumps as big as doorknobs. <clears throat> he stopped. When he stopped, the second he stopped, there was a message in tongues, a one-line message, and a message in interpretation. <clears throat> I happened to know one of the men was a pastor, <clears throat> a local pastor. Because when there's an outbreak and you're guarding someone, your eye is never on him. It's on the congregation, the people you're around. <clears throat> Pardon me. That interpretation came. A second it was over, because of our time was up, Dr. Robert Spence came to the platform and he prayed a benediction that wasn't a benediction. It was a one-line statement of the glory of God. Amen. We walked away. He did a press conference. There were 17 television stations waiting there to interview him about a trip he'd had in Russia. We got in the car. <clears throat> we're sitting in the car and he insisted on sitting in the middle, <clears throat> as tall as he was. Dr. Thomas Zimmerman, General Superintendent of the Assemblies of God here, Billy Graham, Dr. Graham in the middle, me on this side, our driver, and Dr. Wilson up in the front. And he has his notebook, and all of a sudden he says, R.W., I want to ask you a question. To Dr. Wilson, he goes, yeah. So he turned around in the car to talk to him. And he opened it up, and I saw... Dr. Billy Graham's notes are about this big. They're all huge. <clears throat> and he opened it up. And when he did, he had three points. He said, R.W., we have debated. Now, he's just openly talking. We're driving. We have debated the, debated the validity of tongues in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, haven't we? R.W. said, yes, we have for years. He said, I want you to think about this today. <clears throat> he said, I preached one of three points. I preached this one. He said, let me tell you what happened. Point number two was the interpretation of that tongue verbatim, word for word. Point number three was the benediction verbatim, word for word. And he turned to Dr. Thomas F. Zimmerman. And he said, Tom, I'm going home to Moncrief. I can still hear him saying it. And I'm going into my office and I'm going to get on my face and I'm going to say to God, I'm not leaving here. Do you give me everything you've got for me? 
<clears throat> I'm going to tell you something. That's the kind of hunger you're going to have to have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's not a handout at a quick hamburger stand. It's a powerful life. And when you want it, <clears throat> many years later, I get a call from Dr. Vincent Sinan, who's the chairman of the board of the school at Regents University, the School of Theology, the president. Dr. Sinan says, Sam, this is Vincent Sinan. Well, his book, he's famous. Yes, sir. He said, I've got to ask you a question. Can you tell me the story about when you were? I said, sure. So I told him the same story I just told you. I said, why, Dr. Sinan? He said, because recently I'm writing a book on Pentecost in the 20th century. And he said, recently I was in a room with world leaders with Dr. Graham. And I was holding his hand in his office. And as we were praying, he said, I heard something. And I looked over. I stopped praying and I listened. And he said, it was Dr. Billy Graham praying in tongues. He said, he got what he needed. He got what he was after. Now I'm going to tell you something. Doctrinal ideas or thoughts are people that don't. I was there. I know it. And Dr. Sinan was there. And Dr. Graham worked in the power of the Holy Spirit in the last few years of his life. That did nothing but catapult and strengthen his anointing. And God, and that's all it'll do with you. It's real. It's powerful. And it's for those that are hungry. And my prayer this year is, God, I'm praying that there's a Gilgal in this house. I'm praying that every one of you want to be prepared for the battle. And that's part of the preparation. I'm not going to back down off of it. I'm not going to quit preaching it. I'm going to ask you, God, give them a hunger. Give them a thirst. Let the Holy Spirit work in this house and in these lives. And let us see and hear and invest in us, God, that power that's going to give you more glory. And all that we say and do. This is the preparation. This is the preparation. Stand to your feet with me.